Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to Trending. This is Brooke Taylor. Hi again, in for Timory while she's on vacation. Pleased to be back with you. And I will be here guest hosting for one more day this week, today, tomorrow. And Thursday's show is going to be another can't-miss, fantastic lineup of guests. Molly Smith will be joining me. She is the chair of the largest pro-life conference in the nation. It's called Bringing America Back to Life. She's the executive director of Right to Life in Cleveland, Ohio, and really a legend in the state and beyond. She does a lot of work in Canada, grassroots efforts. And there are two major ballot issues that have made national news. And it's a critical time to be alert because obviously we know that the issue of life goes back to the state level as it should be. But there is this force, this push to have the most radical extreme abortion, even pro-pedophilia laws that really any reasonable person would find incomprehensible, absolutely untenable. And there's a special election in August, August 8th on issue one in Ohio that would elevate the standards necessary to amend Ohio's constitution. So these are issues that are nationwide being observed because we know as things go to the state level, there'll be 50 iterations of this. So we're going to talk about that with Molly and also a ballot issue in November that is so radical. It's backed by the ACLU and transgender activists, and they've come in and want to legalize child prostitution, pedophilia, abortion up to birth, no age restrictions with the transgender decisions. And really the most radical thing I could ever imagine being on a ballot in my lifetime, certainly, that is emerging. So Molly will talk about that, give us a bit of an explainer. But again, it's emblematic of what's happening at the state level all over. So we want to have the facts and that will be on the second half of the show tomorrow on Trending. Also, Dr. Peter Howard is going to be with me. He is a theologian. He's director of the Fulton J. Sheen Institute, and he's behind the campaign for the cause of beatification for Fulton Sheen. And there are some exciting developments that he's going to share with us on that front. So he'll join us at the first part of the show tomorrow. And on today's program, what it means to be a man. And again, as Kale said, kind of dovetailing on the topic he was talking about. And today's men, masculinity, this crisis that we have. A real man, a gentleman. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is the genius behind the book. It's called A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the Universe. So we're going to talk about what this book is and what this book is not. We're not just talking about the externals, appearances. This is not just your average how-to etiquette guide. It's really far deeper, transformative than that. And really, I think I can't miss conversation to kind of bring us back from the precipice of the edge here to bring, you know, civilization back into dignity and goodness, truth, beauty, those Christian transcendentals that we talk about all the time. And so as we get into the segment, I thought that we might just hearken back a little bit to the the chivalrous 
swashbucklers, these three valiant yet hot-headed men. I'm not talking about the three musketeers. I'm actually talking about the three stooges. And mind you, as I set up this audio clip, I just want to say that they are wearing suits, the three stooges, like gentlemen. Uh, Check out this clip. Go ahead, Jim. Now then, gentlemen, remember your etiquette. What's that for? We didn't do nothing. That's in case you do and I'm not around. (laughs) He said, remember your etiquette. It's a fantastic episode. And so they're being challenged to become gentlemen. It's a wager. Can they do it? And of course, (laughs) they they don't quite make it. I, I don't know, but I always cringed when my boys were little. We have four sons. And my husband, Jim, would pull up Larry, Curly, and Mo, and they loved it. And I was so afraid that they would try the old eye poke or something when they, some slapstick when they were actually, you know, get hurt. And I never liked it, but the boys loved it. And I wonder, Jim, you you do, I, I wonder if it's like a man-woman thing. Do more, I know women do love, and I now look back and like the Three Stooges, but at the time when I had little boys, I did not like them so much. Did you grow up watching them, Jim? And did you like the Three Stooges? <laughs> I love the Three Stooges. And of course, when you compare <laughs> to what we see on our televisions nowadays, it's mild yeah. in comparison. But it actually reminds me of uh, one time my mom never wanted us watching it either. But there <laughs> okay. were three of us, uh, five kids were sick on Christmas Eve. And so she just couldn't. She was exhausted. And finally, I woke up at 2 a.m. She said, here, just watch it. Go ahead. <laughs> so I was like, this is great. <laughs> never happened and after like that. And like you said. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, you know, looking back, it's like, oh, man, that was just that physical slapstick comedy and so tame. And there were actually a lot of moral lessons that you could learn from from them. And you could make that argument. And, and maybe I guess we'll get the definitive verdict on that on watching Three Stooges. Is it in bad taste or is it okay from our guest? He can weigh in on that. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is a professor currently residing in Europe, I think Romania, around that area, Eastern Europe, research fellow and uh, author of over 100 articles on politics, religion, history, law, and other topics, as well as four books. And the one we will discuss today, it's A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. And and thank you for kind of getting up early to connect with us. Could you make a formal pronouncement on the Three Stooges? Is it gentlemanly to watch that kind of entertainment? <laughs> hmm. I haven't watched the Three Stooges in so many years that uh, it would be difficult for me to... I'm sure I would look at it with a different eye now than I did the last time I watched it, which would have been... Uh, you know, at at, at, at age appropriate, um, you know, time. (laughs) Um, So I really uh, couldn't say, I'm not sure I would endorse every, um, you know, (laughs) every every utterance that came out of Curly, but but never mind. Um, (laughs) Well, I think you have a great point though about having a different eye. How often does that happen? I know, you know, as a young mom, I would say, oh guys, we're going to watch this E.T. And then like one of the childhood favorites. And then I would realize as an adult, these themes that were actually not appropriate and have a second thought about that. And, you know, as you say, things change, our perspective change. I think, you know, sometimes our our moral formation or understanding changes as well, but definitely (laughs) worth revisiting. The clips, the highlights, definitely a mood booster for sure in some sense. But I want to clarify, first of all, thank you again for your time and your book and the purpose. And you're pretty clear right out of the gate 
that this is not just a litany of masculine manners, etiquette, that sort of thing. But this book is much more than that. And I think the subtitle gives us a sense because you say how to survive as a man in the age of misandry and do it with grace. And that word definition, misandry, is contempt for men. And I think that's a great place to start. Can you kind of tell us what this book is and what this book is not? Right. Well, it's it's really an attempt not so much to, to write new rules or change the rules for the modern world. Uh, there are a lot of books that do that already. It's really an attempt to take the traditional rules and um, restate them uh, for the world that we live in today. In other words, I spent a lot of time going back and, and reading the old manuals. Uh, they go back to the Middle Ages, actually. Uh, and, um, you know, looking at the rules, and I, I didn't accept all the rules of the traditional manuals. I didn't necessarily accept all the rules of the of the modern ones, but I knew that the, uh, I felt as I worked on it that the many, most of the traditional rules were still valid and still uh, important, but that they needed to be uh, rephrased or restated in a way that modern men could hear. And I think the biggest difference today is that when you look at the history of these, these manuals, the history of manners, especially for men, What's changed really is the threat to manhood and to you know masculinity and to proper behavior. And tr- traditionally, it often came from other men. The assumption was that you know, it came from insufficient masculinity. But today, in many ways, the threat, the difficulty comes uh, from a larger culture uh, and oftentimes from uh, you know uh, political ideologies or from radicalized women. And that's, uh, you know, that's a new thing. Very difficult for men to deal with. Uh, you can deal with the bully on the block. You can deal with the rival in love. Um, there's lots of books that will tell you how to do that. But how do you deal with the, you know, uh, someone shouting at you uh, for your, your misogyny and your, um, you know, your harassment? And, uh, you know, so I, I tried to, to take the traditional rules and state them in a way that, um, you know, would have some uh, connection with, with, with men today. And you did a fantastic job. I really think this is a must give gift for for all men. And, you know, and maybe I'm reading into it too deeply. But when I was contemplating this, I was thinking of the prototype of all men, mankind, the greatest gentleman supreme, and that's Jesus Christ. And in the book of Isaiah, when Christ is prefigured, it says there was no stately bearing that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Yet he was the supreme gentleman. We all want to behold a man like Christ. And so evaluating what defines a gentleman, again, we're not just talking about exterior or a nice tailored suit, but what does being a gentleman have to do with being a Catholic man or a man of faith? Well, that's a very good point. And uh, even though the book was published by a Catholic publisher, I, I, I didn't get into theological questions deeply, but I did try to connect them because I find uh, theological principles very consistent with the secular principles that are, you know, the, the, the valid secular principles uh, that I wanted to, to, trans, to, to convey also. Uh, and you're right. I mean, there's a couple of times when I do cite Jesus as the archetypal gentleman it, it, for a number of reasons. Uh, and I could have cited him many, many more reasons, actually. Uh, so, um, you know, there, there, there is, uh, it is much more than just, you know, learning to, which fork to eat with. And uh, I started the book, you know, hoping to write a light book, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, an amusing book, something that people could pick up and read uh, in their spare time. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it's a serious matter, uh, being a gentleman. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the ideal has been inseparable 
from the English ruling classes and the American ruling classes for for centuries. Uh, I spent a lot of time studying English Puritans, and uh, you know, in many ways, they contributed a lot to the ideal in the Anglophone and the English-speaking world. And um, you know, the, where 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 to begin with that? Uh, but also, you know, other other Christians over the centuries have have done likewise, and um, it's really in some ways inseparable um, from that. Uh, even though even though the gentleman is not necessarily a Christian ideal, uh, I should say historically, uh, in some ways it was often it was often um, you know separate from it. But the task over the centuries of many uh, theologians, um, Catholic, and then later after the Reformation, especially Puritan, and then later on Wasp. Um, was to uh, was to take the ideal, take take, take the, the you know the, was to infuse the ideal with ethical principles, because there mm-hmm. were always plenty of men that wanted to listen to what wonderful gentlemen they are, and uh, you know enjoy their their status and their you know their role in the, as the ruling the ruling class of society, but they had to be reminded, uh, and this is true of the novels of the nineteenth century, the novels of Dickens, and of Jane Austen and of Trollope, and others. Uh, that the ideal had an ethical basis without which it didn't exist. Um, you know, a gentleman couldn't just be, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, uh, which port to drink and, um, or, or even being chivalrous toward women. It was also, the, it was a, there was a larger ethical ideal that underlay the whole thing. And it was really the ethic of the ruling class. Um, now to say that is not to say that the, uh, that the other men were not admitted to it because one of the ideals, one of the, one of the, uh, the genius in many ways of the, of the English ruling class and the American ruling class and the, uh, and the ideal of the gentleman was that it was permeable. It was something that was constantly being replaced. New entry entrants from the, the lower orders were working their way up through the ranks. And these books, these, these manuals on how to be a gentleman were ways of, of, Taking um, uh, new men, you know, the great unwashed, the, the peasants moving to the cities uh, over the centuries, working their way up to the social ranks, and teaching them how to stop being, you know, bumpkins and 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 to learn to to play the role of the urban dweller and the the ruler, uh, and to do so uh, in with with substance, not just with uh, you know affectations and uh, accoutrements, but with you know the substance of of, of ethics. Yes, and reading your book, you know, I what I was receiving from it is you talk about ethics and also virtue. Psalm 82, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. And that having manners and being a gentleman and all of that, and, and you're talking about the ruling class and what that it really though goes back to what you say are the actions of that soul of that individual and the boy and the man. And of course, St. Paul talks about that. So that in this era where the links between boys and men have been so disrupted, you talk about the lack of rites of passages, for example, which historically would mark that shift. But the actions of a man are that to have humility and to have respect and to care for those that need help. And when you're in a position to do so, in fact, you t- you talk about taking a stand. That's a big one. From St. John Henry Newman to Winston Churchill, you quote, you give examples, you say, if you are afraid to offend or anger, then you are not yet fully a man. The essence of femininity is love. A man, by contrast, has responsibilities that will place him in positions where he must not be afraid of being disliked. Now, we must not offend and anger people for frivolous reasons, not to cower, 
But this is nuanced because, you know, there's also the art of diplomacy and mercy and tact. But if there is an, an Un, an attack, you know, that was unprovoked or an injustice, that it is a duty's man, it is a man's duty to confront it. And I think essentially that does go back to virtue. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. There again, I mean, you could, you could easily quote Jesus. I mean, Jesus was not a, uh, a you know, a wilting flower. Uh, he, you know, he, when it was time to, to stand up and speak out, he, he, um, you know, he did so. And, uh, you know, you could, you could, uh, Again, I, I know that you have a Catholic audience, and I always keep quoting the English Puritans, but, you know, this was true of churchmen over the centuries. They said, they pointed this out, and they would say things like, you know, you have, you have your, you know, your, your, your hounds and your hawks and your towers and your, your turrets and your great estates and all this, but, you know, do you stand up for the poor? Do you stand up for the weak? Uh, do you stand up for the oppressed? And, um, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. And it's not to say that gentlemen should, you know, the gentleman ideal is, is very different from political ideology, where you, you know, you subscribe right. to a, um, you know, a political um, ideal and, and you try to meet, remake the world in your own image. Um, that's, you know, that's not the ideal. It's, uh, it, it, it's very much, but, but there, you know, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've fallen into that very much by losing this ideal of, of, you know, the individual responsibility, which I think comes with this ideal. Yes, you definitely do a great job of kind of litigating that of personal responsibility, and that comes with manhood. And I want, we have to take a break, but when we come back, you have a comprehensive list I love. It covers the whole spectrum of life from the basics, appearance, conversation, vulgarity, meals, you have vices like tobacco, alcohol, gambling, pastime, sports, military service, education, family life, promiscuity, even marriage, and more. So I want to open the phone lines too for anyone that has. Uh, maybe you heard one of those topics and you want to ask about it specifically when it comes to being a gentleman. How does a gentleman behave when confronted with these different things, whether it is um, civic life, sports, or military service? I definitely want to ask about that. one 914 That's the number. And young Thomas is on the phone lines. We will be back with Dr. Stephen Baskerville. The name of the book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Tim Murray, you're listening to Trending on Relevant Radio and the app. More to come. Stay with us. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is here. His book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World, How to Survive as a Man in the Age of Misandry and Do It with Grace. That's a big part of the subtitle. Do you have a question? This is a great opportunity because you can receive insight from an expert in an area of instruction that we just don't commonly get anymore about everything. And we're going to cover a lot of these topics from conversation to military service to attire. The number is one 914 Dr. Baskerville, we have Andrew on the line. I want to take his call uh, with a question for you. Hi, Andrew. Are you there? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, welcome to the show. You had a question for Stephen. Yes. So 
I, I think I, I probably echo, you know, I echo the sentiments of probably a lot of young men when I say that there's a degree of fear when it comes to interacting with women, um, especially when it comes to things like setting boundaries, um, you know, tell, telling a woman no in a, in a, in a variety of contexts is something that I think a lot of young men struggle with, where there's just the, the fear takes over. Like what, what is, you know, what is the way to break through that to acclimate ourselves to setting boundaries and enforcing those boundaries? Well, question. the fact that you asked that question is uh, indicates that you have a good, you know, healthy attitude to, to it to begin with. Because yes, there are boundaries. I mean, part of a big part of the ideal, of course, is what we traditionally call chivalry or gallantry toward women. And there's no doubt whatsoever that uh, you know the, the traditional rules still hold uh, about you know the responsibility to protect women uh, and to defer to women in, 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 in on the right matters. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept everything that you know comes out of the uh, of the National Organization for Women or uh, you know any, any specific individual. Uh, and it's important to, you know to understand the difference. And I tried to sort out some of those in the book. I try to sort out those you know those things that are um, that are important and uh, um, those those ideals of, of gallantry that should be preserved. And those where, you know, modern ideologues have taken advantage of that gallantry in order to slip, uh, you know, to slip new rules into the, into the equation. And, um, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to do that, uh, to, to distinguish the two. Uh, I point out that, you know, we, we have the tough guys of, you know, the tough guys like John Wayne, um, but the tough guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart were actually the ones that were more likely, um, not to take nonsense from, from women. And, uh, where would where do you where do you draw the line? And uh, you know I think you have to um, you know it is difficult to do, um, and uh, that's why I, I you know I try to cover in the book that you know the traditional rules. Uh, there's a couple places where I think you know the traditional rule, even the traditional rules could be bent a little bit, uh, but you have to be careful about that. Um, you know I think I think for example if you look in the traditional guides it, it's considered to be even traditionally it's considered. Uh, un, um, impolite to comment upon a person's attractiveness, you know, a man or a woman. And yet, you know, that's, that's, we've done that for a century for a long time. That's, that was done for, for, for many years. So you don't have to be a radical feminist to believe that that's, you know, somewhat improper and can create awkwardness. Um, but I, I think, um, I, again, you know, you, you look, look at, look at the rules. Part of the purpose of the book is to help you decide for yourself because what I realized was that. The traditional rules don't simply need to be stated. They need to be um, re-explained the reason behind them. What, what's the reason for them in the first place? Uh, because they've been so, they've fallen so far into abeyance that we need to, um, you know, recover not just what the rules were, but what was the reason for them? Why were they created in the first place? And why did they make so much sense? So I think once you understand the rules, where they came from historically and why they exist, then you're in a much better position to, uh, sift out what is truly uh, enduring, what's truly uh, you know, timeless in, in the rules, and what maybe has been snuck in in, in recent years and needs to be uh, to be examined more more uh, critically. 
That's a great question, Andrew. And to your point, Dr. Baskerville, the courtship chapter is really good in going into the pursuit and how the reason we had courtship is because it's not just a union of the two, but it's the families, at least. And Kale was talking about this as well in generations where communities were more wedded together. It wasn't just the two going off on their own, but there were communities and families that were involved. And so that courtship helped the unity and the discernment of that union. And you say today, it seems like even some women expect physical expression of affection and a first encounter and feel insulted if they do not get it. And basically making the case for going slow, err on the side of formality. We are so overly familiar nowadays. Everyone's on a first name and there's a, there's a casualness to that. This is formal. This is special. Make it known your romantic intentions. Conduct some of your courtship in writing. And again, it may seem old fashioned, but like you said, you're explaining the purpose of and the beauty why these traditions have held and existed in the first place, which I think is so needed. Yeah, that's a very good point. Ask- and that that partially answers Andrew's question, I think, a bit, because you know, traditionally you have the you have the, the parents held uh, controlled courtship. They conducted it in many ways. Right. And many people nowadays, young people, don't have parents readily available to do that. Some do, more, more than you would expect. Uh, and they let them do that. But um, you know, in many cases, a, a young person in an urban setting, especially university, has to, they have to do it themselves. So you know, if they can take as many of those aspects of the rules that you know, used to be handled by their parents and try to implement those themselves, uh, then that's, I think, a healthy thing to, to do. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is here. A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World is what we're talking about. And attire is one you have early on because, again, in whether you're, you're just a teenager or a young businessman, even in the workplace, it isn't expected that we all wear suits like it used to be. I have old storybooks that I read to the boys and the dads are in suits and it's like, or like loafers. That's definitely not, it's business casual these days. But you say, get some comfortable trousers that are not blue jeans walking shoes that are not for the gym, a knit shirt with a collar looks much better than a t-shirt with advertising that turns your chest and back into a public placard. And even you say dressing like a child means reverting to the gender neutrality of childhood. And gender neutrality is always at the expense of men because it denies the importance of masculinity and masculine achievement. Proper dress conveys not only seriousness and professionalism, but also masculinity. And you say that wearing a coat and tie not only shows respect to others, but also declares your readiness to accept responsibility in general and the specific responsibilities of manhood. Responsibilities, incidentally, that women do not have and feminist claims notwithstanding do not want. Now, obviously, if you're a farmer, we know there, uh, there are nuanced aspects to this and circumstances where you have to case by case. But so that seems like pretty across the board, that every man should own at least a good suit and some general clothes that are formal. Absolutely. And, and, it should, and it should trickle down, I think, as much as possible to everyday life. And I see this all the time on the street uh, in America and in Europe. I, used to, I first noticed this after communism, by the way. I would see these uh, in the 1990s when communism collapsed here in Eastern Europe. I would see these elegantly dressed women uh, with their, you know, the new freedom to dress, to dress beautifully. And they would be accompanied by men in, you know, in boiler suits. 
And, you know, this was explained to me by communism, you know, emasculating men and taking away their uh, their role um, and not knowing how to recreate it. And yet this is exactly what we see in the in the in the Western world as well today. The same sort of thing. Men dressing exactly the same way as as they could be dressed when they were eight years old. Uh, As as you mentioned earlier, this this uh, is partly the product of the, you know, the, the lack of rites of passage when you. Uh, graduate to manhood and, and you know, start wearing a, a tie and a jacket uh, and a suit. And uh, I think this uh, is de- seriously detrimental to men. It's not just, you know, the cliches about showing respect to other people and so forth. It's a, it's a form of, of gender neutrality that denies uh, men their specific role. Uh, and women don't like it either, by the way, um, when men dress in a kind of a ch- childish, uh, adolescent way. So it, it really has uh, serious repercussions, I think, for, you know, the, the kind of responsibilities that men uh, want to assume, should assume, and, um, you know, should be expected to assume by others. And let's face it, a man in a suit, a man in uniform will always make a lady's heart melt. I have to say my sons are getting, they're excited about this new Oppenheimer film, this Oppenheimer movie that's coming out. And they decided, they're they're mostly grown now, my three oldest are, and they are all going to wear suits to the movie. <laughs> they got tickets to the opening night, they're going to wear suits. I don't know, it's just their thing. But I love that because... First of all, they all always look dapper and handsome. The same thing to go to church, to Holy Mass. We talked about this the other day. Mm. They are going to see the King. And so I understand, come as you are. And again, there are circumstances in communities where we're not trying to focus on externals. However, when you see beauty, and we talk about this too, just on Monday with uh, our artist, beauty has an evangelizing nature to it. And so when you see someone who has taken the time to take care of themselves, there's a dignity about them and about because they are a steward of, they have a soul and a body and they're taking care of that to honor God, hopefully, and and not necessarily for superficial reasons. But when it comes to men, I think there's a confidence that you don't even need to say anything. You just feel like, okay, this person gets it. I feel I can trust them. And, you know, that's that studies bear that out, history bears that out. Um, I want to ask a question because this is something that is very interesting in the United States when you look at military recruitment numbers. They are at an all-time low, not surprisingly because I think a lot of people are disillusioned by the government, uh, by some of the woke ideologies that have been pushed on our service members and in the military. And you say at one time, being a gentleman was inseparable from service to one's country, as expressed in the phrase, an officer and a gentleman. Not serving in arms was something a man had to explain. Every man thinks meanly of himself for not having been a soldier, observed Samuel Johnson. Indeed, the fact that most men do not serve nowadays has had a serious debilitating effect on the status of all men, as well as on their self-confidence and self-respect. Subtly, it has also eroded the freedom of all of us. Really curious, your insight. I thought that was something very good to ponder and reflect upon. Um, Why do you think it is in terms of what we're seeing in the military? And should, do all men have a duty to serve, do you think? Yes, I I think they do. I say say that as one who did not, who grew up during the Vietnam War, and uh, basically uh, didn't exactly dodge the draft, but would have if I'd had to. Um, but yes, we, we've, we've obtained for this in, in a number of ways. Um, 
uh, it's had a, a, a bad effect on men, and I think it's had a bad effect on society uh, and on the military. Uh, and uh, I mean, if you look at it historically, uh, you know, the, the concept, the Republican ideal, which on which the United States was founded, was based on the idea of the citizen in arms. That, that citizenship was uh, the, the part of citizenship was military duty, and that the rights of citizenship, the, the uh, privileges of citizenship, were only conferred on those who had, who had served in arms, and that usually meant the militia. Um, so there, you know, there's that side of it. There's also, I think it's, I think it's also have a role in, in, I don't go into this in the book, but you could write a book about it. Uh, I think it's turned the military into a bureaucracy, um, which is seriously, um, you know, serious problems, as you say, with recruitment and many other and, and fighting capability. Um, because, uh, you know, without the, the citizen soldier, uh, the citizen soldier, the, you know, the militia, the ideal of the militia, um, which was, you know, a big part of foundation of the American Republic. Um, you you lose this idea. So soldier, you know, the military becomes a bunch of desk-bound functionaries, and of course, this makes it much easier uh, to flood the military with uh, with women. Of course, uh, first in non-combat roles, and then with pressure to, uh, in combat roles. And uh, this too has had a, and and has had a serious, I think, effect on recruitment and on the fighting capability as. Uh, other people have pointed out in, in a number of books. So I think, yes, it is very um, separating the idea, the gentleman uh, and, the, and citizenship generally from, um, from the ideal of the soldier uh, is, is, uh, has been seriously detrimental to all of us. Uh, and I think it does a red respect, uh, self-respect for men and, and, and respect of others for men. And you go on to develop that, but a uh, great point. And we're speaking with Dr. Stephen Baskerville, A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World is the name of the book. And so far, we've covered everything from dating to attire. And I want to get Peter because he's on the line when it comes to men dressing well. And sometimes that can be deceiving. And I think as we first began our conversation, we talked about the danger of focusing too much on the externals because, first of all, a gentleman is a moral leader. But I do think that's a great point. Peter, uh, you're with us. Are you on the line, Peter? Yes, I am. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, welcome to the show. Your point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my comment is essentially that external appearance does not guarantee internal reality. So a lot of times people dress according to class or or leadership level or whatever, just dressing elegant as a costume to hide Mm. their true nature, which is evil. So, and the flip side of that is the general public keeps getting trained to interpret certain external appearance as being, oh, that person is ethical, that person is truthful, that person I can take their word and follow their advice. And we have to remember that Hitler dressed elegantly. Mussolini dressed elegantly. The World War II emperor of Japan dressed elegantly. The many kings and queens of Europe dressed like overboard elegantly. And many of them were just outright evil. And people, the rest of us who are not in leadership positions, absolutely must not judge the book by its cover. I think that's a great point. Good cautionary um, remark there, Peter. You want to respond to that, Stephen? Yes, I do. Um, 
it's a very good point, and it's of course very valid. It needs to be, um, you know, understood and um, understood and understood in context. I mean, I think one of the places why, of course, you know, how, how do you how do you read somebody's heart? And that's of course impossible. Right. Only God can do it. But we can we do get indications of it. Um, one of the points I made, just on the on the purpose of attire, and it's kind of popped into my head as I was writing the book. Um, is that yes, when you wear a coat and tie and a suit. Uh, to go to the to the boss to the go to the job during the week, and then immediately you come home at, you know, and, that, and you take it all off and you put a t-shirt on for your family. Uh, and what does that show? It, to me, that shows in many ways uh, servility, um, because you're you're dressing elegantly just to please the boss, just to show you know that you conform, that you you, you play by the rules, but you you don't really have your heart. Whereas the man who wears a tie on Saturday, for example, which is highly unusual these days when he goes off on an excursion with his family, is showing that he's, he's not doing it just for uh, servility, not just to, to please the boss, and you know, to, 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 so, but he's, he's doing it to, to, to show general respect to those who he, he loves. And he doesn't have to necessarily please them in, in the same way. So you know, that's where you, I think, where you start to see a man's character. Does he show the same respect to his family, his friends, his uh, everyday acquaintances, the unimportant people, so to speak, the people that can't hurt him, uh, as he shows to the people who can't hurt him. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's just one little indication of how those, um, yes, uh, you don't judge a book by its cover. But, you know, we all, you know, as I think the Bible says somewhere, that your sin will find you out somewhere or other. And, uh, you know, there there are indications about what, you know, if it's if it's, if your heart is is wrong, it will come out some, sooner or later uh, externally. Your sin will find you out. That's good, and I think there, but within this topic, there are so many tributaries that we could take because, of course, you also don't want to be. And you talk about this: you don't want to be a dandy, you don't want to be a slave to fashion, and that goes for men and women. And uh, this is a topic that we discuss a lot: rejecting, reje- rejecting the spirit of our age and consumerism, and living above our means, and trying to be modest in speech, in word, in deed, and uh, again, going back to virtue. So. That, I think, if we can begin with that foundational reality, but also making the case for self-respect and dressing in a way that will elevate, because especially in this culture where the lines are blurred about men and women and androgyny and the transgender, I do think it's important. You're the one that said, and I've repeated it about a hundred times, that the more formal the dress, the more gender specific it is. And so, for example, a ball gown will is always feminine. A suit is always for, you know, made for men. You think of masculine and feminine. But the more casual we get, like sweatpants, for example, anyone could wear that. A child, a boy, a girl, man, you know, and so there is something to be said for um, the gratitude of being a man or woman and dressing in a feminine or a masculine way that's still modest, uh, but also that ennobles, you know, the environment, the people around us, but again, with the focus on the interior. So I think that's a really good point to ponder, Peter. But also that you write this book about being a gentleman. And I think there are things that necessarily speak to that. And again, we will get into, we have to take a break, but from tobacco to handshakes. These are things that we might not receive as a young man. A a boy might not receive instruction in so readily. A lot of times with the increased divorce rate, it might be a coach or 
you know, someone at church or a grandpa that's helping mentor them. But what I love about this book is you really do a good job of a comprehensive aspect of covering all these aspects of manhood. And at the end of the day, that a man must claim the moral high ground and stand up for men, women, children, and everyone else. And so I want to pick it up there when we get back. The book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and the Ruling, and Ruling the World. It's from Sophia Institute Press, and you can pick it up now. The line to call is one 914 That's the studio line. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Baskerville with us. More to come. If you have a question, would love to hear any of these topics when it comes to etiquette, and he can respond to that. We'll be right back. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. You're listening to Trending here on Relevant Radio and the app. We'll be right back. Stay with us. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Fulton Sheen said that today we have an issue, and that is nemesis of mediocrity when it comes to men. A lot of men are in a rut of mediocrity. And so we're talking about this book, what it means to be a gentleman. And that helps, I think, elevate and set a man on fire. At least that's what we're hoping, going through some things that might seem letter of the law, rule-based, but also heart of the law and why things are the way they are. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is a professor currently in Romania and research fellow, also author of four books, more than a hundred articles on politics, religion, history, law, other topics. His book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World, How to Survive in the Age of Misandry and Do It with Grace. And we are having a terrific time exploring the pages, getting a master class in gentleman instruction. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timory, we've got a lot of calls, Steve, and I want to get to a few before we jump back into the book with the time that we have left. Bob has been standing by for a while with a movie recommendation, and I love a good movie. So, Bob, let's have it. Are you there with us? I sure am. I, I want to start with a quote I read. A gentleman is a man who uses a butter knife while dining alone. Mm, Okay. Have you heard something? Yeah. There's there's something to etiquette, even when when no one else can observe it. I think there's something about etiquette. Treating yourself with self-respect when... when, Obviously, you're you're dining solo is, I I think... uh, uh, To me, I, I, I think that's significant. But anyway, it, the Captain Hornblower series uh, is just magnificent in, in, as far as uh, what we call lonely courage, a man that stands up in the face of injustice against overwhelming odds. And one of my favorite movies of all time is The El Cid, starring Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren, Rodrigo de Bavar. It goes, it's just a magnificent movie it models uh, uh valor courage honesty uh and loyalty and i think these are just principles that as it says in the movie a man cannot live without honor and that's mm-hmm. always stuck with me as well so i know that's a uh, classic would, yeah it's great it's a wonder it's a true story uh it's uh based in northern spain but yep, it's a that's magnificent right. movie 
He battled both the Christians and the Moors. On the other hand, he was also a symbol of romance, legend, and ballad, and Spanish patriotism. Do you know this movie, Stephen? Have you seen it? I've heard of it. I've, I don't think I've seen it. Yeah. No, I don't think I've seen it either. I have to make That's a, a good one. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Bob. Always, it's so hard to find good movies these days. So thank you for that. Um, I, we had Neil. I think we lost Neil. And while we have a few minutes left, I want to get to, if we can, just a few more points. Tobacco. That's one that you talk about. Cigar, cigarette. There's so many different things. What's appropriate, what's not. How It seems in good company, whether you think of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and they're, they're kind of smoking a pipe, that that's okay. But uh, I mean, certainly cigarettes have fallen out of favor. I remember Johnny Carson would have one on the desk no longer anymore. But for a gentleman, is smoking ever okay? And how do you make those rules? Or, you know, what's the line? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one, of course. I'm uh, fairly strongly um, opposed to smoking myself. I've seen uh, in my life some of the devastation that it causes. So I certainly don't favor it. Um <clears throat> And I have nothing uh, against, you know, um, quiet, the, the campaigns that we've generally uh, have been used to, to make smoking and tobacco, um, uh, you know, un, un, unfashionable and, and putting quiet pressure on people, you know, to change. I, I, you know, I, I don't have any uh, um, objection to this. I mean, moral pressure is, is, is the best alternative to, you know, writing laws and regulations and, and punishing people. Uh, for things, so you know, social pressure is is a a useful tool for these kinds of things, um, and uh, so you know, within bounds. Um, obviously, you want to um, anything that becomes ideological, anything that becomes self righteous, um, or moral superiority. Uh, you know, this is things that we should be resisted, of course. Um, and this, you know, our, our our understanding, our sensibilities about what constitutes. Um, Vices have changed over the over the years, uh, very much so, and that's you know there's there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to make sure that we do it in a way that is you know that is humane, and um, uh, you know and again respectful of certain rules uh, about um, you know other other people's behavior and especially what infringes upon us. So I don't think that's a too difficult one to to grasp. At least I hope not. Um, right, and I and I really appreciate it's under the it's under the category of vices, and so again, it goes to gambling and 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 drinking consumption, and I really appreciate that you give fair treatment to the reality and the history. You said, you know, a lot of times it was the quote unquote gentleman that had these vices, and they're not acceptable. Whether it's infidelity and having a mistress, for example, or partaking in hobbies or pastimes that are not morally good, they're sinful, that we reject that. And so that's what I really appreciate about your book is the aspect of virtue and morality and trying to become a saint. You know, as, as Catholics, that's our goal, that's our mission so that we can get to heaven. And you talk about vulgarity, speaking out, um, and even relationships, obviously, which is a huge one. Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up, If especially if it's for a woman that... Um, is trying to reach the guy in her life, some gentlemanly instruction, anything for the ladies that you might offer who are, are trying to just gently um, kind of refine. I know that's hard. That's a hard thing though, because it's got to, um, you know, it cannot be, you talk about the proper role of, of man and woman. And so I guess any final thoughts with that? 
Yeah, it, it is. It is difficult. It requires a, a lot of finesse and a lot of sensitivity these days. I'm sure, especially for a woman, um, because we do have. Uh, you know, it's very easy nowadays to offend people. It's, it, first of all, it's easy to offend, as I said, you know, the rad- radical women who use this as a as a as a part of a, a political campaign. But it's also, you know, there's there's also the MGTOW phenomenon, which I. Um, uh, address in the book, uh, many people may not be aware of this, but this is basically a male strike where men, uh, certain men to varying degrees have, uh, you know, declared that they're not going to interact with women anymore. They're not going to have, uh, well, again, to varying degrees, they're not going to marry, they're not going to have children. Some even refuse to have any romantic relationships with women or any relationships with women at all. <clears throat> and I try to treat this fairly. I try to say that this is, you know, they're, they're, I think that their uh, complaint uh, is, is, a, is 100% valid in terms of, uh, of um, you know, factually speaking. But I think they're also denying something that is human about them, uh, you know, which is uh, sad and unhealthy and um, I think wrong. However bad things are for men, uh, you, you can't deny your humanity or your manhood. And that's what you do if you you know, declare the strike. The strike, by the way, is you know, it's fine as long as it's for some constructive purpose. If you want to change the, the divorce laws or the marriage laws or whatever in such a way that um, you know makes them more humane for men and women, then that's one thing. But just declaring once open-endedly that you're going to have nothing to do with women, uh, again, I think this is very sad. So it's it's easy to offend people on on all sides, and a woman has to um, you know has to have a certain amount of, of course, finesse. And, you know, of course, we always listen to people uh, if we think that their criticisms of us come from love. And this is, you know, this is an important role of of a woman. Uh, It's an important role of of an advisor. I mean, a woman in many ways is a man's advisor Uh, in the days of kings and and nobles. You know, it it was the, you know, the the advisor who who you trust, um, you know, good advice versus bad advice was a different, was a difference between a good king and a bad king. And, um, you know, it's kind of continues today. So if a man trusts a woman and uh, or trusts an advisor, uh, he's far more likely to listen. I, I guess that's kind of why I wrote the book in a large way. because I wanted a book that um, men would trust. Uh, that wasn't scold, scold them. Obviously, scolding right. is, is bad. It doesn't get you anyone anywhere. And, of course, women need to remember that. And books, there's a lot of books nowadays that scold men and a lot of men scold other men. So right. scolding doesn't get anywhere. But constructive criticism is a part of, as I say in the book, ruling the world. You know, if you're not willing to listen to criticism, then you're not going to be a, a good ruler, whether you're ruling your a kingdom or whether you're just ruling your own, you know, your family or your own private space. So, and, and, um, there are many, you know, and there are many paradoxes in here, too, because you talk about that, but then you also talk about humility and being a leader, but also, you know, understanding diplomacy and mercy. And, and I just want to wrap up. We just have just a minute or so left. But this final point, the conclusion that you write in the book, and that is this, men, you must claim the moral high ground and start to stand up for yourself for other men, for women, for children, and everyone else. You start to be a leader. You start to be a man. Perhaps you have served your country in uniform or in dangerous occupations like law enforcement. This no longer is enough. You must not only be an officer, but a gentleman. Your physical courage must be matched with moral courage. And that was kind of our theme from yesterday either uh, as well. Again, the book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World from Sophia Institute Press, stephenbaskerville.com. That's your website. And uh, we just have about 20 seconds left, but I want to thank you again for your time, your book, your work. God bless you. Well written. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good to know Thank that you. It, uh, it sinks in. Yes, it has, and, and we need it and to share it. At Rosary Across America, the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky is next. God bless you.